0: You are listening to The Hospice Chaplaincy Show, a show where we talk about psychospiritual and psychosocial aspects of -of end-of-life care. And now, here is your host, Saul.
1: Thank you for joining us on this episode of The Hospice Chaplaincy Show. I'm Saul Abema, and I have a special guest for you. My guest is Katie Duncan. She's a nurse practitioner and an author and also a death coach. Welcome. (laughs)
2: Thank you, Saul. Yeah. Thank you for having me.
1: Can you give our listeners a little background? Where did you grow up?
2: Sure. yeah. so i uh, I grew up in Maryland uh, in a suburb right outside of washington, d c, sort of the Gaithersburg Rockville area. Um and uh, my parents, uh, when I was a baby, they got divorced. And so I sort of I, they both lived in the within minutes of each other my whole life, really. Um, But I lived sort of these these two different families and two different lives in in some way. Um, And, uh, you know, I had I had different siblings. I had different parents. I had uh, different family dynamics. Um, but, uh, I think all the same, it was, uh, it was something a little unique about my, uh, my childhood. And, uh, I think something I'm, I'm grateful for really, you know, even today, um, as a kid, I was actually pretty athletic. I, uh, I ended up going off to college and playing soccer, uh, up in Philadelphia. So I would say you, besides Maryland. Yeah. You I, played uh, soccer? I, spent, I played. That's tennis. my number one
1: sport. So becoming, uh, a soccer player was part of your dreams.
2: It it was. Um, you know, when I was a kid, uh, my my goal, my dream in life was I was going to be a professional soccer player.
1: <laughs> really? <laughs>
2: yep. Uh, but, uh, you know, I got to college and realized that wasn't going to be in the books for me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yes. Yeah. So moving from soccer, you know, to the topic of death and dying, that is quite yeah. a, a big transition. Yeah. How did your journey or passion for you know, uh, end-of-life care begin?
2: Yeah, so uh, great question. Um, You know, I I think, you know, besides soccer, I think uh, my other sort of love in life and really from as as far back as I can remember is I really just had this passion and, and deep desire to help people. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I think when I, when I got to college and realized I wasn't going to be a professional soccer player, um, you know, I had a friend of mine say, Hey, I think you'd be a really good nurse. Why don't you try nursing school? So, um, you know, I, I went to nursing school and I actually ended up uh, initially in the ICU as a nurse. And I, um, I just didn't quite feel like it was the right place for me. It didn't really speak to my soul. Um, but, uh, right before I switched to hospice, it was actually uh, a patient of mine um, who was going to be going home on hospice care. And I, I didn't really know what it was initially, um, but I, I met this this hospice nurse practitioner who, you know, I felt really just kind of like came out of nowhere, like came out of the universe and just spoke right to my soul. Um, Mm. so it was right after that, that I, um, I really just, I I found myself switching right away into the hospice role. And, uh, it was a little scary for me at first, you know, the first day felt scary. You know, I hadn't really been around, you know, that much. I wasn't really familiar with death and dying that much, you know, yet in the, in the nursing field, at least, um you know, it was, there was obviously death in the ICU, but it was different than it is at home. I'm sure. you. So how
1: how did you handle, um, that change where now you're dealing with death almost every day? How did you handle that emotional toil?
2: Yeah. You know, it's hard to explain to people. I I get that question a lot. Um, you know, how do you deal with, with death and dying? And I I think it's, it's one of those things where maybe it feels like this for you, but it 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 just feels like the right place like it it feels like what I'm meant to do, and it feels so natural yeah. um you know i i I walked into my first day as a hospice nurse, walking into several you know patients and families' homes for the first time ever and and it 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 just felt right. it felt like I was supposed to be there yeah. um, and uh you know I, I think for me. Um, I've, you know, I've learned to see, you know, just over all my experiences, I think I've learned to see death differently than I think a lot of other people. Yeah. Um, I think that death can really be one of the most beautiful and moving experiences that we have in life. Um, you know, I, I personally think it is the most personal, you know, mm. the most vulnerable, mm. and the most intimate part of someone's life. Yeah, And to be able to be there and be present and care for someone who's going through that experience and be along, you know, with them on their journey, um, you know, it just, it brings you that much closer to that person and yeah. it makes you that much more connected. Um and I, I mean,
1: really, I don't think anything else can, can do it that much. No. I mean,
2: what else can, you know? I don't
1: know. So. It's a calling. It's special. Yeah. It's yeah. so beautiful. You feel at one. You feel at peace with everything you do. Totally. And uh, it's powerful. Your book, The Dying Process, I think it brings a lot to the conversation. It's a powerful mm-hmm. tool. If you have somebody who is dying, I recommend this book, The Dying Process. Tell us, what was the motivation behind writing this toolkit?
2: Yeah. Um, thanks for asking. That's yeah, that's special. So I, I, uh, I think it was really kind of a long time in the making. Um, I, you know, when I went into hospice, I, I realized how little people knew about the dying process. You know, I myself was new to death and dying and, and I didn't, I don't even think I knew that there was this, this process to, to reach death. Um, and I realized looking back, you know, at the, with the, the, the people I worked with in the hospital, doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, I mean, I don't think that people really, you know, I don't think anyone, you know, that I'd worked with previously really understood there was this process. And so, of course, families, you know, wouldn't know either. Um, and so, you know, I, I think I, I, I took myself into hospice and I realized I had to learn, you know, it took being there. Um, being at the bedside, being an observer and a student um, from my patients and their families, and you know, watching. Oh, well, this is a process, um, you know, and 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 that every process, every person's dying process, a little is a little different because every person is different, and every family and family dynamic is different. Yes. Um, but I realized that, um, you know, I I I would ask a lot of questions, and I I learned, and I observed and I realized that probably, you know, one of the most important things that I could do for these patients and families was, you know, right from the beginning, be upfront Mm -hmm. and be honest Um, because dying is really scary and it's very unknown to a lot of people. You know, if you haven't gone through the dying process before, you don't really know what to expect and that's scary. Um, and so I took a lot of notes and I made copies of all my notes and I would sit down with, with families and, and just go over my notes with them, go over everything, you know, signs, symptoms, medications, what to do, what to do. And you, you speak um,
1: a lot. Of, you you spoke about honesty. I think that is really powerful because we live in a culture that avoids the topic of death and dying. And as an expert meeting these families who have a loved one who is dying, Sometimes it's important to to say the way it is so that they can fully understand and prepare. Exactly. Uh, yeah. Yes. Yeah. So yeah, you know. 1 to 3 months before death. What, what do you think what what should some of the families expect?
2: Yeah, you know, at my book I do I go through sort of these phases and and the first phase is really that sort of 1 to 3 months before death. Yes. Um I I will actually say I I think a lot of people, you might even notice these things beforehand, you know, six months to a year before death. Um, But I think the first thing that really happens is, you know, we're just our our bodies and our minds are just starting to kind of slow down. We're preparing to stop, you know, our bodies and minds and, you know, we're preparing to stop. And so we disconnect a little bit, we withdraw a little bit, and uh, sleep becomes a big thing in our lives. Mm -hmm. Um, So that that would be kind of one of the sort of the biggest thing that i think of you know kind of in that maybe even like one to three one to six months ahead of time yeah
1: so how how should families handle that because i'm you know there were times i would go in the field and the family is worried no he's sleeping too much and yeah. they feel like yeah. he's withdrawn from us but this is yeah. part of the process we have it to let go yeah. so how do you yeah. encourage families in situations like that
2: i think again it's 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 going through, it's it's being upfront and honest that, you know, this is normal. I think it's reassuring families that that sleep is normal, or withdrawing is normal. And I know that that is so hard, that this doesn't feel like the mom that I know, you know, this doesn't feel like the person I know, but, but we have to honor, um, you know, what they're going through and what their bodies are going through. And allow them to take this journey um, and just be there to love and support them along the way.
1: Yeah, which is hard. But with nurses, you know, people coming, experts like you coming in and educating the family. So as, as as the patient approaches the dying, what should families look for and how should they prepare?
2: Mm, yeah, So, so, you know, I would say within, you know, days to a week, you're going to start to see a lot of changes, uh, you know, things like, you know, maybe your loved one was lucid before and they were awake and, and sort of, you know, talking and, and, and they're going to kind of slip, you know, slowly into this sort of unconscious state. Um, and it's going to be really hard to wake them up and they may never, you know, kind of wake back up and talk again. Um, so that would be kind of the, the first thing that I look for. Um, the second thing that I would look for is sort of changes in their breathing um, you know the breathing can kind of vary um, from really heavy and deep and loud um, to kind of this shallow, you know, these shallow breaths with long pauses um, in between each breath, which can also be a little scary. I think for families if, if they're not expecting it, okay. um, but again, all normal. Um, and I would say the, the last thing that I usually look for and, and tell families about is is hearing for um, what's called a rattle. You know, you hear this this kind of uncomfortable sort of congestion, um, that kind of sits in the back of the throat and it's really just this saliva that kind of, you know, continues to, to be produced, but it, you know, our, our loved ones are not able to swallow anymore. So Mm -hmm. it it sits in the back of the throat and makes this very uncomfortable noise, um, you know, for us. Um, but, but it's not uncomfortable for our loved ones who are, you know, in this unconscious space.
1: Yeah. You really seem uh, passionate about this field. uh, Tell us, what are some of the stories that, you know, I remember, for instance, I remember there was a time when I started in hospice a long time ago. Uh, I was becoming overwhelmed, and I thought about quitting. But then I had this visit. I go into this visit, and I don't remember the, the sickness this lady had, but it affected her voice whereby she couldn't talk. And the moment she saw me... Um, Uh, She wrote on a piece of paper, can you be my pastor? Mm. And uh, I'm like, that really touched me. So I wrote back, I'm like, yes, I can be your pastor. Then she wrote, "Uh, can you officiate my funeral? Mm. I said, "Uh, of course, yes, I can officiate your funeral. What do you want me to say? And then (laughs) in the following weeks, she prepared me. She wrote what I needed. To let her family know, and that 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 would that gave me gasoline to wake up the next day and go back with passion.
2: And how amazing of this this woman to be able to write, you know, what she wants her family to know. I mean, that that's a gift to the family as well. I mean, wow,
1: her courage uh, really encouraged me because her husband didn't want to talk about death and dying at all, but she was ready and she wanted uh, him to know and prepare him. So her way of preparing the family, uh, really touched me deeply. Yeah. Yeah.
2: Yeah. yeah absolutely. <laughs> yeah. There's, um, you know, I, I have a, I have a little story that, that comes to mind. Um, this one, uh, was a story. It's a story about a, um, a gentleman that I met who, um, was kind of like you said, you know, just like this husband, you know, deeply afraid of death and dying. I mean, just total existential sort of crisis, yeah. uh, you know, very afraid to talk about it, think about it, see it be there. Um, but one of his loved ones was dying and, um, it was someone that he was extremely close to and, uh, he was really, having a really hard time. And, uh, you know, it was walking him through the process of death and dying to prepare him and 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 tell him what to expect, to give him a little bit of comfort in that way and some known and preparation. Um, but what I, what I realized um, was that, you know, having him, you know, preparing him with what to expect wasn't all that he needed. He, mm. he really needed to um communicate to his loved one everything that this loved one meant to him. And Mm -hmm. so, um, you know, I I had him write this letter, um, gave him a little bit of instruction and had him write a letter and read this letter to his his loved one who, you know, he wasn't really sure that he would be responsive. And he came back to me and said, you know, it was just reading that letter, writing and reading, I think that letter for him. Um, And actually this his loved one responded. Um, was one of the most powerful things that he had ever experienced in his life. And he said he, you know, he's just so grateful um, mm. for, you know, that opportunity and, and you know, the suggestion. And I think it was, you know, it's just simple things like that, hearing yeah. how we can make this impact and, and help families through a really, really difficult time. Um, you know, it just feels good. Gosh, it, it feels
1: good. <laughs> well, that will take a little break. Our guest is Katie Duncan. She's the author of The Dying Process. We'll be right back.
2: Continuing to be a leader in the field of spiritual care at the end of life, Hospice Chaplaincy provides high-quality professional development webinars that will improve your practice of spiritual care at
1: the end of life. Check out our latest webinars at www.hospicechaplaincy.com. I'm Sole and You're listening to the Hospice Chaplain's Show. We continue our conversation with Katie. Uh, Katie, a few years ago, I was a hospice chaplain, and I went to see this family. The patient was in the hospital, and the daughter was really fighting because they wanted to remove the feeding tube. And the daughter felt like taking the feeding tube away is like starving her dad to death. There's a lot of issues that I've noticed. I've been in hospice now for over 16 years. And I've noticed a lot of issues around feeding, you know, where families are really worried. Why is not eating? You know, why is she not eating? Why is mom or dad not eating? And and it becomes really an issue. And I tell them (laughs) they don't need the food right now. So (laughs) what do you say as an expert?
2: That's a great question. Yeah, that is. Um, I think that's a, a big thing that we struggle with as families is not you know is watching our loved ones stop eating or refuse to eat. You know, like you said, I think we see food as you know life sustaining, and so it's what we're supposed to do. We have to do it because we're humans. Yeah, and and I think you know the the first thing that I would you know say to to a family is. That just understanding, I think it's, again, kind of reiterating that, you know, what the body, what their loved one's body is going through this process of dying and that it's, it's slowing down and the body is shutting down and the digestive tract is shutting down. And, Mm. you know, someone is that, that person, their loved one is, is, you know, food is no longer their, their body's need or priority, And um, so it's really understanding that and honoring again, just what their body is going through. The other thing I think, you know, we struggle, I think with that food aspect, because I think for a lot of us, you know, probably worldwide, food is like a love language, you know, food is love, you know, we gather around food, you know, and uh, I think so in some ways, I think family struggle because it's like, we're not showing our love because we can't feed our loved one. Hmm. Um, but it's just remembering that, you know, there are so many other ways to show love, you know, just being there, you know, being present, holding space, yeah. you know, saying, I love you. Um, yeah. and really the act of caring for them. I mean, that, that is love. So that's what I would say.
1: Yeah, it is. <laughs> Thank you. I think that brings a lot of education in that area. Uh, there was a time, uh, quite a while ago I was invited, um, I was visiting this patient in a nursing home and I met the daughter there uh, with the husband. And the daughter is like, We cannot understand why mom is, what is, you know, what she's hanging on to, why she's not going. Is there, you know, any spiritual ritual, anything you can perform to make her go quickly? (laughs) I laugh, but (laughs) Mm -hmm, and I see a lot of situations like that. How do you encourage families when the person is hanging around and not dying?
2: This is their journey. You know, this is our loved one's journey and it's not ours. And uh, I know we love control. I think we all probably love to have control. (laughs) <laughs> but it's um, it's giving ourselves permission to let go of that control and let go of, you know, knowing when their time is going to, you know, going to gonna be when they're going to die and just allowing them to take their journey as they need to. Um, you know, I think sometimes um, it might be that they're waiting for someone, you know, maybe mm. someone hasn't said goodbye or or maybe they're processing something, um, you know, themselves, trying to let go of something, their family, their friends, their life, you know, as they know it. Um, you know, and I, I think that it's really important for families, you know, in that time, um, two different things, I would say, number one, is giving your loved one permission to die. I mean, that that is a gift to say, you know, I love you. And of course, I'm going to miss you. But, you know, we're ready. We're ready whenever you're ready. You know, we're going to be okay, we, we will survive, um, and we'll continue your legacy. So when you're ready to go, you know, you can go. Um, so I think permission is, is such a gift. Uh, A lot of times people hold on for those they love. Um, the, uh, the other thing I would say is if someone's, you know, not dying and we don't know why, you know, I would ask yourself if, if, if you've been present with them a lot and, uh, you know, it might be that your presence right next to the bedside, you know, they might feel you there. They might know you're there. Yeah. and you know feeling and knowing that you're right there with them maybe they feel you're just not quite ready so i think offering space to your loved ones letting them be by themselves for a little while to see if they you know let go in that time yeah
1: how do you encourage families who want to be there when their loved one is dying but yeah. the moment they leave the room, <laughs> their mother or father dies, and then they blame themselves for leaving the room, for taking a oh. break or going to get something to eat. Oh, yeah. Yes. Or
2: falling asleep in the chair because you've been there the whole time. Yes. And it happens all the time. While we want to be there and we feel like we're supporting them by being there and loving them by being there with them in that moment, yeah. maybe it's that you know, they don't want you to see them. Maybe they want to go by themselves. You know, maybe it's time for them to take this this last piece, this you know, letting go of their body, you know, on their own. Yeah.
1: Well, that we'll take a little break and we'll be right back.
0: If someone you know is suffering from mental health issues and could use some support, please call the National Alliance for Mental Illness helpline. It is a free nationwide peer support service providing information resource referrals, and support to people living with a mental health condition. To contact the NAMI helpline, please call 1-800-950-NAMI. That's 1-800-950-6264, Monday through Friday, or send an email to info at I'm
1: Sole and we continue our conversation with Kerry. Uh, as, as the patient is dying, you know, uh, remember, we are we are human and we live in relationships. And sometimes those relationships have to come to a close. How do you encourage families or friends to uh, come to that moment of relationship closure? Mm-hmm.
2: So I believe just because someone dies, it doesn't mean that your relationship died. I think the relationship changes. Um, because that person is maybe no longer with you physically, but everything that you went through and, you know, everything that um, you did together, everything you talked about, you know, the the feelings that you have, I mean, that makes up a relationship and, and that doesn't die, it just changes. Um, and so I think for, for families, you know, after a loved one dies, I think one of the um, one of the most beautiful ways we can respect our loved ones is by um, by honoring them, by celebrating their life, and and living on their legacy, um, because that that kind of continues your relationship with them.
1: Hmm. Continues in a different form.
2: It continues in a different form. It transforms. Yeah.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about you now being a, a death coach. <laughs> yeah. Tell us about <laughs> that uh, transition, or even maybe a, it's a combination as being a nurse practitioner and a death coach. Talk to us about that.
2: Yeah, yeah. So I have really taken, um, you know, all of my sort of different experiences and and thought, hey, well, I, I think I can make a pretty, you know, a, an impact as a death coach. And people say, well, well what the heck is that? <laughs> you know. <laughs> and uh, I would say, you know, the the I would kind of take it in three parts. Um, you know, when a family finds out that a loved one is dying, they have so many questions. I mean, I, I've been there, so I, I know I've lived it. Um, we question everything, you know, the, I think one of the biggest things we question right away is how do we know we're making the right decision? You know, should we continue this aggressive treatment or is it time to choose hospice? And that's one of the hardest things, you know, we as families have to kind of get through. But then, once you you know choose hospice, it it's this whirlwind of you know what happens now, what comes next, you know what am I supposed to expect, you know who's going to help me, you know how long do we have, and it's just this whirlwind. Hmm. Um, you know, I think in an ideal world, uh, the health systems and the health professionals that families work with really should be able to answer all of these questions. But I think with you know, I, I don't think our system is really set up. Um, to to support us in death and dying as much as it should be, and so I feel like yeah. the system fails us a little bit in that way. And so, you know, at least in in my experiences, um, the majority of families that I work with are not getting these answers or are having a lot of trouble finding the answers to their questions. So they're coming to me scared, totally overwhelmed, lost, totally unsure, and, and really, quite honestly, they just feel helpless. Um, and so, you know, using my sort of experience and background, you know, I am able to kind of help work through these questions and help these families find the answers that they need or that they're looking for. The second thing that I would say that I do as a deaf coach is um, is I, I help make sure that when families choose hospice, that they are getting everything that they need and everything that they're supposed to be getting um, so that we can try to help them create the the best end of life experience that we can, Mm. um, you know, with the given situation, you know, for them and their loved one, the thing that I think really kind of makes me a little different from other end of life professionals, um, and hospice is that, you know, kind of like a life coach where, you know, a life coach kind of helps people set up these life goals and help them achieve them. I kind of do the same thing, but in regards to death, Mm. And so what I do is I work with families to create this really personalized and individualized death plan for their dying loved one and and for themselves really as well as the family. And a, a death plan, you know, what is that? Really what it means is working with families to help them envision how their loved one would want to live out and spend their last months and weeks and days and even minutes left of life. And once we've really created this, this vision and this plan, I help them realize that really this, this vision can be a reality. So that's what I do as a death coach. It is really incredibly rewarding. And um, I, I, I feel really honored to be able to kind of do what I do.
1: So two questions in line to that. Uh, first of all, how similar is that to death dollar or is it the same thing to death dollar? And then is this an additional service to hospice, or is it part of complementary hospice support?
2: Great question. So uh, to answer the first question, um, compared to a death doula, so... Um, you know, I I think that doula, you know, there are definitely certified doulas and, and certified doula training, but um, I think if you did any of those trainings, you would kind of find that, um, you know, they would say, I think in a lot of the trainings, or at least from what I've understood, um, is that really anyone could be a, a death doula, that yeah. it's just serving presence, you know, it's, it's holding space um, for someone who's dying and honoring them in that moment. So, nice. you know, families, I think, could be doulas. Um, so I, I think that, you know, we're all a little different in some ways. Um, I think, you know, I, I have this experience as yeah, uh, in a healthcare sort of profession in the nursing and nurse practitioner role. Yeah. Um, and so I think, you know, in some ways, I'm a little bit different than a doula. Um, now, in regards to the question for is this complementary or is it an addition, this Is really, you know, I act kind of as an addition to to hospice services as this this sort of extra support system, extra layer.
1: I'm curious. You know, we talk about life goals. Now you're talking about death goals. What goal should be on everybody's death goal list?
2: Oh, I mean, I I think the goal is to is to honor yourself. I mean, as the dying person, I think you know that's going to look different for every person. I think the question is, you know, what does life mean to you? What is most important to you in your life? What is most meaningful? And, and what is a, what is a good life and good death look like for you? And and let's start to envision that. And, and then can we start to create it? Um, um, but I think that's the most important question is, you know, what's most important to you? What, what yeah. means the most to you in life?
1: And then you work with what, and what the person or the family put on the table as their, exactly. as their priority.
2: Exactly. Exactly. We look at priorities and, you know, and that's a great way to put it. Yeah. What are your priorities in life? Yeah. And then we, we work to create that into their, their life for however long that might be. Um, because I think that that, you know, what's meaningful and important to you, that's what gives you quality of life. And if we can improve, you know, the quality of life for someone who's dying for as long or as short as that might be, then we can also improve that quality for that family. Um, and I think that that can serve to really help in the, the grieving process, yeah. you know, after death as well.
1: So what do you think that most families wouldn't get from a hospice support to what you'll be bringing to the table as a death coach?
2: A vision, this vision of, of what they want their life to look like. Um, you know, of course we, you know, of course we want comfort, um, and and that's always a part of the plan of care with hospice. But um, I think this is a little bit different. Um, you know, it's not necessarily directly related to um, to physical care, you know, personal care. Um, it embodies really everything, very holistic. Which I know, you know, hospice is is, is a holistic, um, you know, is <laughs> holistic in itself as well. But.
1: I think you bring a lot to the table. I think you could work with different hospices, and, and I think you bring a lot to the table. You br- you know It's an extra eye uh, mm-hmm. in this dying process because it is a chaotic process. You hear about yeah. the diagnosis, and then yeah. there are relationships to work. And for me, you hear lots of confessions, You know things that yeah. people, you know, people want to get their spirits right, their relationships okay. right, their environment right. There are so many things. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and it's yeah. important. And you know, I think we take the process of dying uh, for granted, or oh, we are we are afraid. You know, we are just ready for it to happen <laughs> yeah. quickly yeah. and <laughs> then be done right. with it. <laughs>
2: right. I, I think you know a lot of times you know people are more we're more afraid of the process of dying than the death itself. You know, I, I think that's probably pretty true for a lot of people.
1: Yeah. <laughs> so, what are your final thoughts?
2: Oh, final thoughts. Um, you know, I, I think it's really easy for, for families to get tied up and caught up in the worries and the fears and the concerns and the uncertainties. But this only happens once. You know, your loved one's time is limited, and therefore this time is incredibly precious. And I think the best thing that we can do as families and as as caregivers and as loved ones is just be there and be present because we can't get this time back. So yeah. say all the things, do all the things, and just be be incredibly grateful for every moment you have.
1: How can our listeners get a hold of you?
2: Sure. So uh, my website is www.deathcarecoach.com. Uh, right now, the only thing that's really on my website is a free toolkit uh, for end-of-life care that I've created for caregivers, um, as well as the ability to sign up for my email list. Um, you can also find my book on Amazon. Uh, it's actually, I'm coming out with the Spanish translation, and uh, uh, actually pretty soon here.
1: Nice. Uh, and
2: I actually have a, a second book in the works uh, on self-care for the caregivers coming out this fall. Um so that's on Amazon, um, but I would say really the, the best place to reach me where I'm most active is probably going to be by joining my uh, Facebook group. We have a community, it's uh, the deaf.care.coach Facebook group, um, and we have uh, a, a little supportive community that is pretty organically growing. Um, so whether you sign up for my emails or uh, joining my Facebook group, um, this is probably going to be the best place for information, um, books. And uh, I'm actually going to be launching a course for caregivers later on this year as well. So,
1: Thank you very much for joining me on this conversation.
2: Saul, so, thank you for having me. And thank you for all that you're doing and, and sharing this work.
1: Thank you. That was Katie Duncan. How book, The Dying Process, Your Essential Guide to Understanding Signs, Symptoms, and Changes at the End of Life. Please get that book. It's an amazing tool. I think it's beneficial in this conversation and in the field of death and dying. So thank you very much for listening.
0: This show is brought to you by Hospice Chaplaincy, promoting excellence in spiritual care at the end of life. This episode was recorded at Audio Hive Podcasting in Julia, Illinois. You can find our podcast everywhere podcasts are available. If you enjoy listening to this show, please don't forget to give us your feedback by writing a review on iTunes. For more information, please visit www.hospicechaplaincy.com.